0: This is Ashley at Recovery Radio, and today I'd like to talk to you about how important it is to keep the message of hope flowing. Did you know that some of our listeners are on ships at sea? That's right, people in the Navy or Merchant Marine out to sea and away from their meetings for months at a time. They write to us and express their gratitude for Recovery Radio's ability to provide solution and comfort in their times of isolation. The hope we provide them becomes their life jacket, protecting them from a spiritual drowning during difficult passages. A thin read indeed, but a powerful one. Please help us keep this resource afloat by donating to our cause today. Just go to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. Having me, especially Victor, my sweetheart, he's such a doll, and uh, Helena, who's, who's been so nice and uh, the basket in my room and uh, and this lovely place, and uh, thank you for asking me. Uh, this is um, this is a little bit uh, funny, weird, funny. Um, I haven't been to a Maryland State Convention for a long time. It sort of used to be on our group's list of places to go. And uh, we went uh, when it was held in Delmarva one time of the year and then the next year it would be held up here. And um, and we loved it. Uh, it was at a Maryland State Convention that I first heard uh, a member of the Young People's Group from Baltimore say from the podium, don't give up on us, God isn't through with us yet. And it was the first time I had heard that, and I thought, how wonderful, you know, that young man up there saying that. And uh, of course, a little later in the program, I realized that that goes for all of us. Um, but I remember that about the Maryland State. Um, it's also a little weird um, this morning because usually my husband and I spoke, and I would always speak first, and so he had sort of rebuttal rights, you know. <laughs> this morning I'm speaking with my son, and I got him. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, Jerry, this may be my, my chance to take off. Um, anyway... um I am really glad to be here. My serenity date in the Al-Anon program is April 4, 1972, and uh, that was sort of the beginning of a new phase of my life. You know, I've, t- I've tried to think about my life in stages, and, you know, the first 20 years uh, of marriage um, were, were, were really fun years in some ways, but it became the drinking years. And the second 20-some years were the AA and Al-Anon years. And they were truly wonderful. And now I'm into a different phase. I'll have to come up with a name for that, but I'm not into it that much yet. Um, the greatest miracle of my life was coming into the Alabama program. And you know, this year my husband would have had um, 25 years. Uh, Jerry will have 17. And my daughter Jackie will have 16. And if you add that up, that is a lot of years of sobriety for one family. And um, I can tell you there's nothing more wonderful than living in a family where people are practicing their program. I mean, if I say something stupid, I can look at that other person biting their tongue not to answer me back, you know. (laughs) Not a bad deal. (laughs) Anyway, there are some people in in, uh, groups all over this country that when I say things like that, they add up those years, and they'll send me... uh, uh, AA chips for 39 years 41 years 45 years and it's very impressive except back at my home group and they don't get impressed but uh, I'm glad some of them are here um, Earl and Millie and Frank we go back almost to the beginning Becky so do we Joyce John uh, and Bob um, they, th- those are my they're my lifeline and uh I like to look at them when I'm speaking and think, you know, that's, um, that's me now, in with these people and, uh, and loving it. Um, my first night in Al-Anon Al- Al- was, was a miracle. The night before, uh, three men had come to our house and 12 step my husband. And um, a man who was to become my husband's sponsor came into the kitchen where I was hiding. And he said, lady, there's an Al-Anon meeting tomorrow night at College Park. I suggest you be there. He had this wonderful gravelly whiskey voice, and it sounded like the voice of God. And I was going to be there. <laughs> I mean, I would have come no matter what after that. But actually, I would have been there anyway. Because, you see, I thought Jack really needed me uh, to help him with this program. And I was going to come and find out what it was all about and help him the way I had thought I helped him. For many years. Um, and so when I got to that meeting, I dressed very carefully. I put on the best dress I had and curled my hair and, and uh, makeup, and I strolled into my first meeting. I wanted you to know who the alcoholic was, and it wasn't me. And, um, but there's a man, Tom, who's an old time member of our group. And he said later on in his story that I was the sickest thing he had ever seen. (laughs) Now there is a moral to that story. (laughs) Um, What it is, is that I hope you have, like I do, a group that can look past the outside and look at your eyes and uh, know when you're hurting. Because they knew I was hurting that night and they know it today. And uh, we all need that kind of group to support us. And I have that kind of group. You know, um, I always feel, like Jerry said this morning, a little bit inadequate telling my story because it isn't very exciting. Jerry and his dad were very much alike. Uh, They didn't make the jails, and they didn't make the institutions. And, um, um, you know, Jack went to work every day, uh, sometimes not in as good shape as he might have, but he did. And so it was very hard for me to see alcoholism as a disease. I think maybe if he had done some of those things, I might have been able to, you know, to relate. But because he was uh, a kind of a quiet alcoholic, um, I just thought there must be something wrong with me. And, you know, he would tell me that often enough, but, uh, you know, I thought maybe I wasn't a good enough wife or mother or money manager or something. Something had to be wrong with me to explain why this man had to drink. Why this man, who had so many people who loved him so much, had to drink. And, um, you know, Thoreau talks about um, leading lives of quiet desperation. And that's what was happening to us. I don't think any of the neighbors knew that there was a drinking problem in our house. Certainly our friends didn't know it because they drank very much like, like we did. And um, But what was happening was in the house, inside, inside us and inside the house, and what was happening was that a marriage was falling apart. Um, my job in those days was to hide from the children the fact that their father was an alcoholic. Um, and and for the most part, I think I was successful at that. Um, Mostly because, you know, there weren't a whole lot of loud fights and screaming matches, and, uh, and a lot of those kind of things I was talking about didn't happen. And I think the children probably knew that their dad drank a lot, and certainly when we had a lot of parties at our house and there was a lot of drinking, they knew um, about that. But I don't think that the sickness, the illness, the alcoholism, I don't think any of us knew that something really serious was happening. Um, I didn't come from an alcoholic home. Um, my dad uh, liked to drink beer, but he would have two every night. Um, I saw him drunk one time. He was climbing the stairs up to his bedroom, and he was singing, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. And I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And um, and he was a lovely man. And so when I met Jack, uh, who was the first alcoholic in my life, um, and he drank beer. He was very much like my dad and was sort of part of, of the scene. And I had no way of knowing that there was an illness at the end of that. Um, I met my husband, and, um, and we dated for two or three years. And the night he asked me to marry him, one of the things he said was, um, Rose, we could go dancing through life together. And I believe that. You see, um, he was a very good dancer, and we loved to dance, and we would go dancing three and four times a week when we were dating. And so when he said that, it seemed it seemed like uh, that's what we could do. I mean, I had this immature view of marriage, which said to me that any two people that look that good dancing together certainly must be able to make a go at marriage.) Um, I sometimes call it my Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire complex, you know, God they look good. <laughs> so anyway, um, um, I believe that. And, and so we got married. Um, Jack was a, um, uh, what can I say about history, and he was a fast sipper. I should have known early on that there was something weird about his drinking. Not that he was falling down on the floor drunk, but because he was always two or three ahead of everybody else. You know, that was sort of um, uh, the way he drank. And as the years progressed, it got more and more. And... um, so at the end, uh, I think his drinking would go something like this. He would get up in the morning, probably throw up and clear his throat and do all those wonderful things. And then he would start drinking at lunchtime at work, um, go back to work maybe. Um, sometimes he didn't. But on the way home, they would drink beer in the carpool. He would get home and uh, and insist on making cocktails for dinner. After dinner, he would start drinking beer. And then he would fall asleep on the couch. Now, my response to, uh, to this was um, that dear old dad had a hard day at the office, you know, and he was just tired, and so he would fall asleep at night. But then around 11 o'clock when the children and I were in bed, he would hear that refrigerator open and close back in the den that he built, and uh, that's when he did his lonely drinking. And from then until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning until he could fall asleep or pass out, uh, he drank big time. And uh, that was the way our days went and you know uh, through the years um, we would talk about alcoholism and we would talk about his drinking and we tried all kinds of different ways to um, to do things differently Um, but you know none of them worked and I didn't know enough about the disease of alcoholism to know why none of them worked. And I suspected that it probably had something to do with me. I mean, maybe he just didn't love me enough. I mean, why couldn't someone who said that they loved me stop drinking if I asked them to? seems simple enough. Um, but uh, I knew nothing about the disease. Um, one of the things I didn't tell you about this dancing business, um, and it, it has to do with the really wonderful full circles that we have in this program, and um, uh, the first year we were in AA and Al-Anon, College Park always has a dance on New Year's Eve, and Jack and I won a um, little prize in a dance contest that night, and you know, here we are 20-some years later. Um, and dancing was still a part of our lives, even though during those 20 years uh, we did some dancing. But a lot of it was me dancing in the bed. <laughs> he would come in, I would dance out of the bed. You know, uh, fast two-step. Anyway, um, um, so that's sort of the way it was. We had um, we had three children, and uh, um, he would get drunk sometimes and embarrass me. Um, I remember one night when I think he crossed that magic line into real alcoholism, and um, he called me up on the phone, and he was in a bar in the Mount Pleasant section of, um, of Washington, and I got there, and in front of him were five martini glasses, and uh, it was just like someone hit me in the stomach because I knew that something had changed. You know, he was essentially. Um, a beer drinker, and um, to call me up in the middle of the day in a bar with five martini glasses in front of him. I just knew that something was wrong. Something big time was wrong. And really from that day, that that did mark the the decline into real real alcoholism. Um, I remember that day because we had just moved into a new house um, in University Park, which was um, actually two blocks from the place where we were to go to AA meetings uh, for about 20 years. So his problem in those years was that he liked to drink in nice places. And, um, and uh, his way of doing that was with consolidation loans. And every once in a while, I would have one of these white slips of paper shoved under my face at the breakfast table, and he would say, sign that. And I would say, what is it? He'd say, sign it. I'd say, isn't this just what we did six months ago? Yeah, babe, but you know, this time it's going to be different, and uh, and I would sign it, and so then he could be off and running, um, you know, until the next crisis, and then we'd have another consolidation loan. Actually, the very fortunate thing about that time was that we didn't have um, computers, because if one loan company had ever been able to access the records of all the other loan companies. He would have folded long, long before that. Now, uh, my problem during those years was uh, depression. You know, when he would get into one of his really bad places and embarrass me or make a fool of himself at a dance or at a party or something like that, I would go into what I used to call a blue funk. And these things would last for a couple of weeks, and it would get very quiet around their house. Everybody would walk on eggshells. And um, I wasn't speaking to anybody. I don't have any memory, and I probably ought to ask Jerry about this sometime, of speaking to the kids during these times. I was just in a zone. And um, the reason why that is um, that is and was scary to me was that uh, there's a lot of depression in my family. And uh, my mother had two or three nervous breakdowns, and I have uh, uh, aunts that, that have had it, and so I knew that I was treading on dangerous ground, especially because sometimes in those depressions it was more comfortable there than it was out of them, and, uh, and I knew that, uh, that it was dangerous. And because I had seen my mother go into a depression one time, and I had seen uh, her inability to get out of it when she wanted to, and, um, and it was very scary to me, so I knew I was in trouble. Uh, Jack had a bad mouth. He was not physically abusive, but um, he had a bad mouth. And so a lot of the things that he said, I believed. In those days, I had the impression that the only time a drunk told you what he really felt was when he was drunk, and he got up the courage that it was the rest of the time um, that was different. Uh, I know now in the al program that uh, drunks do and say a lot of things when they're drinking, and most of it is based on fear, and and, uh, uh, and they do lash out at the person closest to them because they know that we know, and uh, they can't pretend. And uh, so a lot of the healing that I have had in my lifetime, especially in this program, has come from finding out the answers to some of these very simple facts, you know, the fact that drunks don't necessarily mean what they say when they're drinking. Um, I had a five year plan in those days, um and it went something like this. When um I I decided that I wasn't gonna spend the rest of my life living with a lush and uh, so I decided that when the last child got out of high school that I was gonna leave. And you know in this program it says that if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. And uh <laughs> when the last child graduated from, from high school, um We were on our way to a Maryland State Convention down at Delmarva. Jerry was going off on his trip to find himself, and Jackie, uh, my other alcoholic, was going to California with some of her friends, and we were taken off to a Maryland State Convention. And I can still hear God laughing. Uh, You know, I guess my, my big dilemma during the drinking years was that I couldn't understand uh, alcoholism, And that is our dilemma. We don't understand. See, I did a lot of drinking, too. Um, we had a lot of friends that drank, and uh, we had a lot of parties, and drinking, for the most part, was a lot of fun. Uh, but I always knew what drink had to be my last. It was like I had a red light that went off and it said, if you take one more drink, you're going to throw up or be out of control or make a fool of yourself, none of which I wanted to do. And I couldn't understand why he didn't have that red light. And I know today that that may be as good an explanation as I have for alcoholism, that alcoholics don't have that red light that tells them when they have to stop drinking. And I do. So um, you learn a lot of stuff here, a lot of stuff. Um, The end came one Easter Sunday morning, and we all went to church at a place called the the Shrine. in northeast Washington, and it was one of those wonderful days, you know, and we were sitting in the pew, and Jack reached over and grabbed my hand, and he said, babe, everything's going to be all right. And, you know, about that time, this light came in one of those stained glass windows and landed on his head, and I thought, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. (laughs) Well, we went home, and we had our, our usual Easter dinner where we had lots of good food, but he made the cocktails before dinner and the wine during dinner and the after-dinner drinks and, and then starting on the beer, and, and he got very drunk. And that night we were trying to play cards with my mom and dad, which we had always done with them, and um, he got into a fight with my dad. Now, you have to understand, um, Jack adored my father, and uh, I think the feeling was, was mutual. And so for that to happen, that was another one of those those big things, you know, like that bar with the five martini glasses. And um, my mom and dad left to go home, and and we started a fight. I mean, it was a, a loud fight, you know, back and forth, and that was sort of unusual. And for the first time, I think the kids were aware that something big was going on downstairs. And um, he threw... Um, one of the kids out of the kitchen when they came down to see what was the matter. And then he stormed out of the house, and uh, that, that, that big boulder hit me in the middle of my stomach, and I knew uh, that that was the end. And um, something was different. Well, uh, he went out and drank a lot more that night. But he got up the next morning, and he told in his story that he was going to go see a lawyer and get me off his back. He figured that was about the only thing that was going to make his life happy was to just get get me out of it. And, um, and the miracle uh, for him was that um, in going up Connecticut Avenue in D.C. to go to Wheaton instead of Mount Rainier to borrow money to pay our income tax, um, he stopped in AA headquarters. And uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of explanation for that. And... Um, I don't think anything is needed. We know in this program what it was. Um, But that night, uh, three men came to our house, and that was when Gil, who was going to be his sponsor, came in the kitchen and um, told me about the al program. And um, that was sort of it, you know, like Thoreau says, just quietly desperate people, you know, trying to find the answer to an insurmountable problem. Um, And I didn't know that... uh, that alcoholism had already defeated us. So um, I came into the Al-Anon program and um, started my journey through the steps. Um, I read something in our wonderful Courage to Change book, and I have never found an explanation that suited me any better than this about the steps of the Al-Anon program. And it said, the first time I ever heard the 12 Steps read at a meeting, I became very still. I felt I was not breathing. I was just listening with my whole being. I knew deep within me that I was home. And that's how I felt. You know, I knew that somehow this program was going was gonna to be our answer. And um, so I have loved working the 12 steps of this program. As I told you, living in a family where most of us are alcoholics, uh, that's a very special thing. So the first step says that we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. I was 42 years old when I came into this program. And as I uh, told you a little while ago, I had all the symptoms that al have. I had, you know, the nervousness, the depressions, um, uh, rashes, headaches, the whole thing. Uh, but I think most of all, the Al-Anon disease is best described as aching loneliness. You know, there is nothing quite so lonely uh, about than, than living in a house with a whole bunch of people and feeling terribly alone. Uh, there's nothing quite so uh, so hopeless and helpless than living with uh, someone that you love desperately and, and seeing him uh, get a little worse every day. Um, I'm sure... Some of us have watched uh, physical illnesses do that to the people that we love, and it's very much the same, and you have that same terrible, scared feeling in your stomach all the time. Um, I used to feel alone at parties, mostly because I was watching him and um, uh, wondering how we were going to get home in the car. Um, The second step says we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. there's lots of ways to be insane, and we people in al <laughs> we have a real corner on that market. Um, I used to stand in my kitchen window every day and wait for him to come home from work. Now, I got home from work at 4.30, and even on a good day, he couldn't be home until 6.30. But somehow, it was my job to stand in that kitchen window. Now, I have back problems today, and one of the reasons is, I think that I had to get into a a funny position in that window because we had a big bush out there, and in order for me to see his car coming around the corner, that's the way I had to stand. I'm really kidding, but um, somehow that was my job. Now, the um, the thing that bothers me more about that than all the time I wasted two hours every day for I don't know how many years was the fact that in those two hours, sometimes those kids of mine would come up, and they would have... Things to say to me wonderful things and my standard answer to them most of the time was leave me alone and um, well anyway that that um, that bothers me today now um, you know in this program it says that we need to make amends uh, for some of the things that we did and uh, the way I try to make amends for um, some of those hours in that kitchen window is well, I babysit, you know, and every time I click off another hour, I sort of have this little thing in my head that says, huh, one more hour in that kitchen window. Um, now, I don't like to babysit. I don't know why this can come to any kind of a shock to you grandparents, but I don't much like it. I love those kids. Oh, I love them dearly, but I want them to come with their parents, and I want them to leave with <laughs> But I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. Um... Um, when, I, when I do and I do it cheerfully, I really do I uh, click off some hours in that kitchen window I used to um, start worrying about Christmas because there were always a lot of cocktail parties around the Christmas holidays that my husband went to and um, at the beginning of, of, of December when I'd hear the first Christmas carol playing on the radio uh, of the car or somewhere uh, I would start getting nervous and it was always going to be because on Christmas Eve, uh, Jack was going to be drunk and um, the Christmas carols were going to be playing and the kids were going to be crying and it was going to be a mess. Now, a few times it was close to that, but most of the time it wasn't. The point was that that whole month of December, I was a basket case. And usually I didn't enjoy Christmas very much because I was tired, exhausted, depressed, and upset. Um... You know, that phrase that we have in this program, happy, joyous, and free, means an awful lot. When I uh, went to that first Al-Anon meeting, it was a third-step meeting, and I immediately looked around the room at all those lovely ladies sitting around that table, and I thought, oh, God. Um, I had done a lot of church work in my life, and um, and um, I don't know whether I should say this, but, I, I you know, lovely little ladies sitting around a table at a meeting, I wasn't real thrilled with. I thought life was a little bit more exciting than that. And, um, and they were talking about the third step. And then I really got turned off because I went to church every Sunday. Um, you know, we, uh, we went to church every Sunday. And I realized sometime later in the program that um, I remembered what I did on Sunday morning. I would sit in church and I would watch Jack because he'd had a bad night the night before. And I would get so angry because he'd be sitting there looking so pious. And um, and I would think, you know, how can he do that after what he did last night? Now, you know, what was wrong with that was, um, you know, I had so little spirituality left at that point that I was not even grateful for the fact that he was trying to go to church on Sunday morning to be an example to his kids and that maybe he was holding on to the very last thing he had. And uh, when... You know, when I realized that, I thought, these steps are for me. You know, just because I go to church on Sunday morning doesn't mean I have any spirituality. It means that I go to a building, you know, and, um, and I'm sitting there for all the wrong reasons. And I hope today that maybe I go because uh, I want to feel a little bit more spiritual. Um, when we had been in the program about six months, Jerry told you this morning that Jack had a slip. And uh, he came home this night very drunk with, uh, with some men and they went back in the den they started playing liars poker and he was throwing $20 bills around and then he was writing checks and and uh, I don't know, he might have even thrown in the furniture after a while, but Jerry came home that night and I told him what was going on and he went back and as you heard this morning, he said, gentlemen, my mother and I would like you to leave. My father's in no condition to, pl- to play um, poker. And... Um, Like Jerry said, I had never seen him so angry. And Jerry left to take that uh, other gentleman home, and he was threatening to kill Jerry when he came home. And I believed him, because I had never seen him that angry. And I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And um, I'd only been in the Al-Anon program six months, but something told me to get out of it, because I knew that if I did nothing, these two people that loved each other were going to hurt each other, but I also knew that if I tried to do something, I was going to make matters worse. And so I went back in my bedroom, and I knelt down, and I just said, God, you've got to, you've got to take this. I can't handle it. And when I came back out into the living room, the two of them had their arms around each other, and both of them were crying. Now, um, I knew that if I had learned that much in six months in the Al-Anon program, that if I stuck around, I would learn more, and that was my that was my moment when I really committed myself to this program. Um, as I moved through the steps, I realized uh, a lot of things um, about us. I learned that we're not as sick as our secrets, and that um, um, the, the ability to share and ask for help is probably one of the most important tools we have. You know, early on in the Al-Anon pro- program, I kind of lost my my fear of everybody knowing what was going on in our house because Jack would go to a meeting, and, and in those years when we were in another church that we're in now, the AA room and the Al-Anon room were right smack up against each other. And he would go to a meeting, and if we had had a big argument about, if you're getting the idea that we didn't have an easy time in sobriety, you're absolutely right, you know, <laughs> The first two, two or three years were rough. You know, I expected that that the minute he got a year in the program, you know, that he was going to start doing all the things I wanted him to do, like fix the porch, paint the windows, you know, do all that stuff. You know, and he was letting go and letting God. <laughs> anyway, you know, we he would come to a meeting, and, and I could you couldn't hear what anyone said, but you could hear the voices, you know. And I would hear him in there talking, and I'd hear people laughing, and i thought that son of a gun's in there blabbing everything. And then after the meeting, I'd go out into the room, and everybody would come up, and they'd pat me on the shoulder, and they'd say, there, there, Rose, everything's going to be all right. And I thought, oh, God, you know. <laughs> but, you know, after a while, you just said, ah, what, what, what's the difference, you know? Um, they all love me. You know, they're like family. Um, <laughs> that, was a, that was a trip. Um... I also learned that my resentments would kill me. Um, I remember the first time Jack and I had a really serious um, discussion. We, we had a lot of serious discussions. He would storm out to an Al-Anon meeting, and he stormed out to an Al-Anon meeting. And I got up in bed, curlers in my hair, and I got a legal pad out, and I started writing down resentments. And I got to 39, and I stopped. Um, I had a lot more, but I guess got tired of writing. And um, that was pretty, that was pretty appalling to me. Uh, and I knew that I'd stored up a lot a of, lot of ugly stuff. And um, not too long after that, I was in my doctor's office and one of the members of the Laurel group where I actually live now, uh, was in the doctor's office and we went over to the hot shop afterwards, and I pulled that list of 39 resentments out and shared them with her. And that was my first fifth step. Didn't know it at the time. Damnedest one she probably ever had. But anyway, um, uh, that got rid of a lot of of what I was feeling. So, um, you know, the other thing I learned in this program was one of the hardest things that we have to do is accept people the way they are and not the way we want them to be. Um, that's very important when you're when you're raising children and when you're trying to get along with a, with husband and friends and family and people at work and the whole world. You know, you just have to accept people the way they are, and hopefully love them in spite of it. Um, so that was very important. I told you about some of the amends that um, I've made to my children. The reason I stress that, um, coming from Al-Anon, is that. One of the things I learned early on in the program was I was the one that did the damage in my house. It was not the alcoholic. told you the alcoholic was sort of a quiet guy. He would get into an argument with Jerry over the Vietnam War politics or something at the kitchen table. But that was about the extent of it. The rest of the time, he wanted to be um, jolly Mr. Popular, you know. And the person in the house that was going nuts was me. You know, they say if you want to know whether there's an alcoholic in the house, look at the spouse. You know, because we're the ones that are going nuts. And um, I know this because um, uh, the kids used to have meetings about me. And um, the subject of the meeting would be, do you think mom's going to leave dad? And uh, they told me about that years later. Um, and, and so I know that, that I was the one that was causing them a problem. I was the one that was hollering and screaming um, You know, I would come home from work at 4.30, and I'd be okay all day at work. That was sort of an emotional vacation for me. When I would walk in that house at 4.30, if there was a feather on the floor, I would go ballistic, simply because I knew I was walking back into worry, because then I would have to spend that two hours in the kitchen window wondering whether he was going to get home from work, whether he was going to be drunk, whether he was going to kill himself, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, um... making amends to my kids for, for lots of that stuff. You know, we do, we do terrible damage to our children. Why should children have to worry about whether mom and dad are going to get a divorce or not? I mean, I know in some cases it's necessary, but, but why should that be? Because someone's drinking and, uh, you know, that was hard. Um, I also have learned, uh, a lot of things about about um, spirituality. You know, I used to think that a spiritual awakening was what happened to me when I sang in the Blackstone Choir on Sunday morning, and uh, because I would hear all those lovely old hymns and the tears would be rolling down my face, and I thought, "Oh my goodness!" But I know that spirituality comes as a result of having worked all the steps of this program, and what a wonderful healing program this is when we can make amends to our children, to our spouses, to some of our family, and. Um, and then use that on a daily basis to stay well. So um, that brings us sort of up to the middle point. Um, after about seven years um, in the program, uh, we got that phone call from, from Jerry one morning. And uh, I remember Jack getting out of bed and saying, boy, I'm going to lay some AA on that kid. And, uh, and he tells in his story that God just said, be a good listener. And uh, that was what, was what he was. Um, you know we worried about Jerry through the years Uh, not so much that we because we knew he was an alcoholic we knew he drank but um, he was just turned off he was just turned off and um, he was so cynical we were down at Blackstone one time and we talked to a a priest down there and uh, we talked to him about Jerry and we said, you know, we're really worried about him. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in, in anything. And that priest said to us, Do not pray that Jerry will come back to church or that he will believe in God. Just simply pray that he will hit a bottom and he will have to he will have to ask for help. And so after that day, well, that's what we did. We prayed every day that he would have to ask for help by reaching a bottom. And we had no clue then. That the way he would solve all those problems of his spirituality, his belief in God, and all the other problems in his life was by becoming an alcoholic or admitting that he was an alcoholic and coming into this blessed program. Um, I have to disagree with you just a little bit, Jerry, about uh, that honors thesis at Maryland. Um, He said he didn't have a clue that he was an alcoholic, but I asked him one time when he wrote that thesis. Jerry... With all that research, didn't you know you were an alcoholic? And he said, um, sure I did, Mom. He said, I just thought I had more time. So, you know, if you have someone out there who's still drinking and you're depressed and upset and nervous and headachy and all those other things, just pray every day that he will have to ask for help or she will have to ask for help and, and reach that bottom. And um, and maybe they just need a little bit more time. Um, our, our youngest daughter, Jackie, uh, she was a closet alcoholic uh, and she was also very shy. So, you know, she'd come rolling in at night um, drunk and fly up the stairs. And We thought she was just bashful. And um, but, you know, another reason why I know that I did some damage in my house is that the first time I ever heard her speak at College Park at an open meeting on Saturday night, one of the things she said was, I had to come into AA to find out why I hated my mother so much. <clears throat> now, you know, we have a very good relationship today. And, um, um, but, uh, and, and when she said it that night, we had a good relationship. So um, I was not devastated by that. But I might have been uh, because I did a lot of damage. Um, the two of them, Jerry and Jackie, are alcoholics. We have a daughter, Jack, uh, Colleen, who's um, um, not an alcoholic. We don't know why. We tell her she's not trying hard enough. <laughs> but she's, she's good Al-Anon. Uh, she has spread the message to some of her friends who who badly need it. And uh, she lives in a community now where there's some people who, who um, need the AA and Al-Anon program, and she's got permission to share her family's story with them. And um, so that's been a great blessing. But, you know, uh, drinking uh, is no longer a part of my life. Um, but, um, you know, through the, through the sober years, things happen, And uh, what I found out is that even in sobriety, um, uh, we, ha- we have tests and uh, we had a lot of those along the way. But there has never been anything, nothing in this program that we could not get through or solve with the help of all of you. Nothing. Um, Jack had a heart attack in 1979 or 80 and um, what we found out is that there are programs within programs. He got calls from all over the country from people who had had heart attacks wishing him well and telling him that he was going to be okay. Um, And then, (laughs) magically, or maybe not so magically, when things were going really well and I don't have any particular reason for it, uh, I went into a major depression and uh, couldn't understand that. And for so long, I put off doing anything about it because I thought, surely anybody who could work the third and the 11th step of this program didn't need to be depressed. And one, one of you wonderful people called up one day and asked me a very simple question, or two, two or three questions. She said, Rose, do you believe that God works through people? And I said, well, of course. And she said, do you believe he works through doctors? And I said, yes. And she said, don't you think you ought to give God a chance to help you? So I went to the doctor and I went on some medication. and. Um, and it was fine. After a while, it was fine. And um, and sometimes I, I have a little bit of a squirrely feeling and I know where to go. I just let God work, you know, whether it's two doctors or calling someone up on the phone and talking, whatever, we just got to let God work. The important thing is what I said before, the most important thing is that we have to ask for help. Um, so what's it like now? Um, uh, about three, uh, two and a half years ago, um, the alcoholic, the major alcoholic in my life, uh, got pneumonia and heart problems kicked in, and um, he was very sick for a while and he couldn't make it, and um, and he died, um, and that left me single. Um, <laughs> So being single is a trip, you know, and uh, um, <laughs> I don't know how uh, uh, I don't know how sometimes, you know, just to, to handle the whole thing. But it's OK, you know, because I've got all my A.A. and all my friends and uh, and I go places. And one of the really special things about it is that um, I, I've known a lot of people who have lost their spouses. And it's very sad, mostly because they don't have anything to do. You realize what a miracle it is in this program. I can go someplace every single night and maybe a couple of times during the day and be with people that I know, people that I love, and fun. Have fun. That's the most important thing. They're fun. They laugh. They have a good time. And uh, that is really special. I'm not treated like a single. Uh, I'm just treated the way I've always been treated, with lots of love and affection. And I have fun. And that is truly a miracle. That is truly a miracle. And so, you know, with the help of the people, um, um, it's going to be okay. I heard a tape um, uh, one time and uh, a person was talking about an alcoholic that he knew. And he said that this alcoholic had been sober a long time and he um, uh, had helped an awful lot of people. And he asked this alcoholic, wasn't he sorry? that he was an alcoholic. And the man said, well, yes, I am. I'm sorry that I hurt so many people. But he said, I'm not sorry that I'm an alcoholic. And the other person said, well, why? He said, well, because if I hadn't been an alcoholic, I would have just been an ordinary person. And, you know, with all the people that he had helped through the years and all the things that had happened to him in this program, he felt very special being an alcoholic. And I think that's, that's the way we all feel after we've been around. What a privilege it is to answer the telephone and someone needs help, and some little thing you say is what takes them over the hump. Or um, how, how special it is to be in the midst of someone dying and have all your AA and Al-Anon friends around you to support you. You know, I have to tell you about one thing, and I don't want to get sad, and I'm not going to. Um, But uh, at at one point during Jack's illness in the hospital, they had to perform surgery for um, double bypass and and valve replacement. And they didn't think he was going to make it through the operation. And um, so we were all in the waiting room and it was a bunch of Al-Anon and AA people and family. And uh, the surgeon came out and he said, well, it's over. He's going to make it. We're just cleaning up. And I don't know who started. I think it might have been Bob, but the next thing I knew, everybody in that room was up, holding hands, saying the Our Father. And uh, I will never forget that moment. <clears throat> never. But I thought it, it was the miracle of the program. Now, I thought that was a miracle as far as Jack was concerned, but it was not to be. Um, he actually didn't make it, even though he survived that operation. But for that wonderful night, uh, I will never forget it because it, it showed me what you people do and, and what you people are. Um, for a person who came into this program and very badly needed a program of some kind, physically, mentally and spiritually, as I've tried to explain to you, this program has been my lifeline. I know today that together my group and I uh, can help people who come, the new people who come into the, into the group. I know that my family and I can heal and grow and learn to love each other even more. And most of all, I know that together, we can do what we could never do for ourselves, that God will help us do what we could never do for ourselves. Um, I have a sponsor who's someone I call a tough old bird, and uh, sometimes she says to me exactly the right thing. And if I call her up and whine, and uh, complain about something, she will always um, set me straight. And I guess I was doing that one time in the last year, and what she told me was something that I, I have treasured, and she said, When your feelings are all confused and going in all directions, you then have to depend on fact. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what, you are going to be all right. Thanks a lot, and I love you all.